Can we believe in miracles? Even in today's modern world of science and technology? Well, to answer that, we need to know what a miracle is as well as what a miracle is not. How do we evaluate miracle claims? How do we know whether it's from God or just a magician's trick? Or worse, what if it's from a deceptive spiritual force like some people think? Today, you'll get some evidence and answers on this much debated question. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zukerin. Dr. Zukerin is an author, speaker, and scholar who specializes in world religions, Christian apologetics, and cultural issues of concern to all of us. Check out our website for years of collected resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism at evidenceandanswers.org. You can download radio shows on a multitude of topics featuring interviews with leading authorities, Pat's articles and books, and information on how you can get involved with Evidence and Answers. Bookmark us and visit often. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now let's go to Pat Zucharin with part one of his discussion, Can We Believe in Miracles? How can a modern, rational person be confident that miracles are real and a part of our historical faith without having to jettison my brain and say, I believe in them by blind faith? That's a great question. Can we believe in miracles? Miracles play a vital role in the establishment and confirmation of our Christian faith. Philosopher Peter Kreft writes, Subtract miracles from Islam, Buddhism, Confucianism, or Taoism, and you have essentially the same religion left. Subtract miracles from Christianity, and you have nothing, nothing distinctive, no reason to be a Christian rather than something else. You see, without miracles, there would be no word of God without them. Because the Bible cannot be the supernatural Word of God without supernatural acts of God. It cannot be the divinely inspired Word of God. So you'd have no Word of God without them. Secondly, you have no Son of God without them. Jesus cannot be the supernatural Son of God without supernatural acts of God. So no Word of God, no Son of God, and you would have no salvation without them. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, And if Christ is not risen, your faith is in vain, and you are still in your sins. So miracles are vital to our Christian faith. So let's begin by defining what exactly is a miracle. C.S. Lewis provides us with one of the best definitions in his book, Miracles. He defines miracles as an interference with nature by a supernatural power. In his book, All the Miracles of the Bible, New Testament scholar Herbert Lockyer said that a miracle is some extraordinary work of deity transcending the ordinary powers of nature and wrought in connection with the ends of revelation. Alright, so let's break down these definitions here. Miracles, then, are supernatural. They are the work of a divine being. They would not have occurred without divine intervention. Secondly, they transcend or override natural law. Natural law is how God works regularly. He has put laws in place such as gravity and time, and that's how God usually works. Well, miracles transcend natural law. And third, miracles are a part of God's means of revealing His nature and His purpose to us. Now, in the New Testament, there are three words used for miracles that kind of describe the character of miracles. The first word we find is the word signs, or the Greek word there is semeon. This word denotes the purpose of miracles. It refers to an unusual occurrence transcending the common course of nature. They're communicating 
something very important. That's a sign. Signs are temporary and give a specific message. In other words, once the sign is given, there's no need for it to continue on. For example, when you come to a stop sign, once you see the sign and the message is given, the sign does not continue to follow you down the street. The next word there is wonders. This points to the nature of miracles. This refers to something out of the ordinary, causing the beholder to marvel. So wonders catch your attention and cause you to realize something special is going on here. You better pay attention. Third, the word here is powers. The Greek word here is dunamis, which refers to the source of miracles. This refers to the ability to produce a strong effect, the source that produces the miracles. Therefore, to sum up the word studies here, these words describe the character of biblical miracles. First, miracles are an exception to the ordinary course of events in nature. They're supernatural events. Third, miracles are an act of God and have the fingerprint of God all over them. Examples of miracles are uh, God raising the dead, power over nature, power over all kinds of disease demonstrated by instantaneous healings, healings not coming over months and years, but instantaneous healings. Miracles then are supernatural. They interrupt the normal course of events and they are not repeatable. Now I was speaking to a group on miracles and they disagreed with me on my definition. In fact, the lady in the group said, you know, I see a miracle every day. A sunset is a miracle. The birth of a child is a miracle. I see God's miracles every day. Well, I agree that sunsets and the birth of a child is a wonderful thing, but these are not miracles. These are examples of God working through His natural laws which He set in place. They are not miracles because they are common occurrences and they will be repeated each day. Miracles are an exception to the natural law. They interrupt natural law. They are not repeated events. Hey, for an example, the sun standing still in Joshua 10 or the parting of the Red Sea. These go against the natural order of nature. So, miracles are an exception to the ordinary course of events in nature. Second, they are supernatural events. Third, miracles are an act of God and have the fingerprints of God all over them. Fourth, miracles have a moral dimension. They confirm truth, not error. See, God does not associate His miracles with what is false. Where you find false teachings, beware of the supposed miracle accounts that surround them. In Deuteronomy and in Matthew 24, the prophet and Christ warns that false teachers can perform powerful feats to lead you into false teachings. So these are the characters of miracles, and it's important to understand what miracles are, but also what they are not. See, miracles are not simply what cannot be explained or anomalies. For example, many thought eclipses were miracles, but there's a natural explanation for them. And in fact, they're actually regular or repeatable. We, we can predict when the next one's going to occur. So eclipses, although they are rare, they are repeated in the course of time and often predictable. Second, miracles are not natural coincidences. Sometimes the intersection of natural forces produces some unusual effects. For example, in a Midwest town, they experienced fish raining from the skies. Well, what happened was a tornado traversed over the lake, sucking up the fish, and when it ran out of steam, it dumped the fish on the town that uh, it was about to hover over. Third, miracles are not statistical oddities. Many unusual events are 
statistical oddities. For example, the chance of winning the lottery is very unlikely, but it does happen. So this is not a miracle, it's a statistical oddity. Alright, now this is the definition and character of biblical miracles. Next, we need to understand what is the purpose of miracles. Well, the purpose of miracles as revealed in the Old and New Testament, miracles confirm God's message and His messenger. Where you see genuine miracles at work, there you know God is at work. Where there are supernatural events, the supernatural is communicating to us. Right? For example, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus made the connection there. He recognized that where there are miracles, God is at work. God is giving us a sign here or a message. Remember now, there are three worldviews. All three cannot be true at the same time. And as we studied, evidence indicates that we live in a theistic universe. Therefore, the worldviews of naturalism and pantheism cannot be true. We're left with three theistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. All three affirm that God confirms his message and messenger with miracles. And of the three, only Christianity is confirmed with miracles. In fact, what's interesting is that even in the Quran, the holy book of Islam, the Quran affirms the miracles of Christ. For example, in Surah chapter 4, verses 63 to 65, states that God's power is manifest through the miraculous works of the prophets. Now, Muhammad is repeatedly asked by the people to perform a miracle, that they may know he is a prophet. Yet, his only miracle claim is the Quran. All he does is point to the Quran in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, and others. That's his only miracle claim. Muhammad states that miracles do indeed confirm a prophet. Chapter 7 of the Quran, chapter 23 of the Quran, and others, he states so. And the Quran states that Jesus did miracles. What's interesting is that the Quran affirms that Jesus was miraculously born of a virgin, that he did great miracles, that he did not die but was raised to heaven. In contrast, in the Quran, Muhammad does not do any miracles. On several occasions, he's asked by the people, to do a miracle to confirm his prophetic calling and he refuses. He simply says, look at the Quran and that is enough. In the oldest Buddhist scriptures, Buddha does not do any miracles. Miracle claims appear 400 years later in later writings of Buddha. And same thing with Islam. The miracle accounts of Muhammad don't appear till nearly two centuries later in the Hadith. Well, historians have shown us that it takes two to three generations for legends to develop. Why all the eyewitnesses who can confirm the account as true or false need to pass from the scene. And that's what you see here in the other religions. The miracle accounts of Buddha appear nearly four centuries later. The miracle accounts of Muhammad appear almost four generations later. But in the Gospels, as we studied previously, and if you'd like information about that, go to evidenceandanswers.org and you can download my show on the historical reliability of the Gospels. The Gospels are first generation. Several of them are eyewitness accounts. So it's too early for legends to develop. There are just too many eyewitnesses who can confirm these miracles as true or false. Now the next question is, are miracles possible? Is it rational, is it reasonable for us to believe in miracles? Or do we, as my 
host friend asked me on the radio, you know, do we have to jettison our brain in order to believe in these miracle accounts? Well, remember our definition of miracles. Miracles are a supernatural event. So in order for the supernatural to occur, there must be some supernatural force outside the universe. And if God exists, miracles are possible. To prove miracles, one must be able to show that it is reasonable that God exists. And as we studied, also you can get this on evidenceandanswers.org. shows on the evidence for the existence of God. Not only am I teaching on that, but also other teachers. Uh, Dr. William Lane Craig has a good one on there on evidenceandanswers.org called Five Evidences for God. So you can download those or listen to them for free at evidenceandanswers.org. Now, if God exists, miracles are more than possible. They're actual. The greatest one has already occurred. God created the universe out of nothing. So, is it any difficulty for God to raise someone from the dead? Is it any problem for God to part the Red Sea? Is it any problem for God to halt the rotation of the earth for several hours? So, to conclusively disprove miracles, one must prove God is impossible. It's impossible to say God exists, which cannot be done. If there is a supernatural God, there can be supernatural acts of God. Now let's take a look at some of the most formidable arguments against miracles. The first objection is one we often hear, is that miracles cannot be proven scientifically. Well, to answer this objection, we first must understand the scientific method. The scientific method begins with a hypothesis, then this hypothesis must be tested again and again, and when you get consistent results, you have a theory. So science is designed to study repeatable, observable events. The principle of regularity is the essence of scientific understanding. Science is designed to discover the order of natural events and the natural laws of nature. But remember, miracles transcend natural law. Miracles are a rare occurrence and they are not repeatable. They are one-time singularities. Does this then discount miracles? Does it make it illogical to believe in miracles? No. There are many things that are not repeatable or observable that even science affirms. For example, the Big Bang. That's not a repeatable event. Yet, majority of scientists hold to the Big Bang, origin of the universe. Life originating spontaneously from non-life. We've got no proof of that, yet science holds to that. So it's inconsistent for scientists to argue against miracles because they're one-time events yet hold to one-time events of their own. And in fact, science points to the supernatural. The Big Bang points to the beginning of the universe, and whatever has a beginning must have a cause. Therefore, what is the cause of the universe? God is a great candidate. So investigating miracles requires the study of evidence. And what does the evidence point to? And involves more the historical method, not the scientific method. Right, now the Next argument comes from perhaps one of the most brilliant atheist minds of modern time, David Hume. He presented some of the most formidable arguments against miracles. So we'll just cover three of his arguments against miracles. And in fact, in several radio debates I have had, when it comes to miracles, Hume's arguments in some form or another are pretty much what is used. This is his first argument. It goes like this. Premise 1. Natural law is by definition a description of a regular occurrence. Premise 2. A miracle is by definition a rare occurrence. Premise 3. 
The evidence for the regular is always greater than that for the rare. Premise 4. A wise man always bases his belief on the greater evidence. And conclusion. Therefore, a wise man should never believe in miracles because miracles are rare and as Hume believes, the evidence for the regular is always greater than that for the rare. So evidence for a regular event will always outweigh that for miracles. What's the flaw in this argument? In fact, here's an example Hume gives as well. He says, in, in history, the vast majority of times when someone dies, they remain dead and do not rise from the dead. Why then should we believe in this one instance, someone named Jesus rose from the dead? We have overwhelming evidence that when people die, they stay in the box. They don't get up and, and walk again. Therefore, if we have all this evidence that when people die, they stay dead, why should we believe in this one instance, someone rose from the dead? So a wise person should not believe in the resurrection. So what's the flaw in this argument? Well, the flaw in this argument is premise three. The evidence for the regular is always greater than that for the rare. That's the flaw here. Because evidence for the rare is sometimes greater than that for the regular. You see, Hume makes a mistake of adding the evidence instead of weighing the evidence. Hume says just because the regular events are usually the way things occur, then we should not believe something that goes against a regular occurrence. But just because regular events are usually the way things occur, one must not dismiss a rare occurrence right away. One must look at the evidence and weigh the evidence, for the evidence for a rare event can outweigh that for a regular event. For example, if someone falls off a cliff 400 feet, that person usually will die, especially if they land on their head. However, is it possible that someone could fall off a cliff 400 feet and survive? What if you hear of such an account? Should you dismiss it right away? The natural law teaches a human body cannot handle such a fall, so it must not be true. And if you're David Hume, you'll conclude a rare occurrence cannot happen because people have fallen off cliffs lower than 400 feet and they've not survived. Well, we can't dismiss, I mean, if we hear an event of a person surviving a 400-foot fall off a rocky cliff, we cannot dismiss it right away, we must first examine the evidence. And if the evidence is strong, we have a case that a rare thing may have just happened. And in fact, I have a friend, Danny Yamashiro, he fell 400 feet off a cliff here in Hawaii and he survived. How do I know that occurred? I wasn't even here on the island when it occurred. I was in college in California. I was not here yet. How do I know this event actually happened? Well, I examined written accounts, I talked with witnesses, and the evidence was very strong that something rare had occurred. Now, according to Hume's argument, I should dismiss this as untrue. In fact, I should not believe in any rare occurrence. But you see, you cannot add the evidence. You must weigh the evidence. You must look at the evidence around that particular event. Many times, the evidence for the rare outweighs that for the regular. Well, Hume's second argument is this. Premise one, there are not a sufficient number of witnesses. The witnesses are not people of integrity. The witnesses were ignorant and uneducated, and the witnesses were biased. Now, there are major flaws in this argument. First, there are a sufficient number of witnesses. First Corinthians 15, Paul states that there are over 500 people. 
Plus, you have the witness of opponents who could not deny the empty tomb or the testimony of the apostles. For example, look at the apostles preaching throughout the book of Acts. They appeal to the people. Like in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, You are witnesses of these things. You know, Christ, a man attested to you by miracles, of which you are indeed witnesses. Okay, so he appeals to the crowd saying, You've heard of the events that surround Christ, and many of you have even seen them. Okay, he can't preach that kind of message if it didn't occur. So there are a sufficient number of witnesses. Second, the disciples were men and women of integrity. Their integrity is seen in that they were willing to die for what they believed. They lived a life of suffering and persecution. And history shows us that men and women will not die for what they know to be a lie. Many of these witnesses died for their message and lived lives of poverty and persecution. History shows us men and women will not go to their death for what they know and can confirm to be a lie. Nor will they be willing to send their wives and sons and daughters and friends and family members to die for a message they know to be a complete lie. Third, many witnesses were educated. Paul was a very educated man. Nicodemus was an educated man. Joseph of Arimathea was a ruling member of the Jewish council. Furthermore, think about it now. How educated and sophisticated do you have to be to discern that someone is dead and then a few days later, that person who is dead is now alive? Fourth, although they were believers, that does not discount the facts they proclaimed. Being a believer in Christ doesn't mean one cannot report the facts and report them accurately. The facts remain and were examined by friends and foes and enemies of the cross. So truth depends on the facts, not the beliefs of an individual. Hume's third argument is this. All religions have miracle accounts to back up their claims, and since all religions contradict one another, their miracle claims thus cancel one another out as upholding their religion. Major flaws in this argument as well. All religions do indeed make miracle claims. However, not all miracle claims are the same. All evidences for miracles are not the same. Only Christianity do we have first-generation and often eyewitness accounts. Historians teach that it takes two to three generations for legends and myths to develop. Since the New Testament is a first-generation account, it is way too short for legends to develop. However, in other religions, we see legends arising generations after the founder. For example, in the Quran, as I mentioned earlier, Muhammad performs no miracles. However, Miracle accounts arise two centuries later in the Hadith. Buddha does not do any miracles in the earliest manuscripts. However, generations later, miracle accounts begin to arise in later Buddhist scriptures. So all evidence for miracles are not the same. And in the New Testament, we've got a unique first generation, several eyewitness accounts of miracles. In our final section, let's take a look at the difference between true and false miracles. What's the difference between true and false miracles? Well, first, biblical miracles are superior and they are unique. Biblical miracles are supernatural, not simply supernormal. Right? For example, there's a big difference between a man walking on coals, which many can do through strict practice and discipline. There's a difference between walking on coals and walking on water, as Jesus did. Hey, there's a big difference between healing a headache and raising someone from the dead or instantly healing someone from an incurable disease like leprosy. 
Second, biblical miracles are connected with God and His truth. God will not associate His miracles with teaching that is false. One of the first areas we need to look at is the difference between miracles versus psychic prophecies. Okay, There's a major difference between biblical prophecies and the prophecies made by psychics here. Major difference is that biblical prophecies are 100% accurate, while psychics are often wrong. Biblical prophecies are precise, while psychic predictions are very vague. Biblical prophecies are connected with God's truth, while psychics are connected with error. And finally, biblical prophets do not use occult methods, while psychics use occult methods. Psychics use occult objects to see the future. They often need to go into some kind of alternative state of consciousness while biblical prophets remain fully conscious, even in, in dreams or seeing visions. Psychics often call on foreign spirits to control their mind and their activity. Well, it's getting good, but our time is up today on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. But we'll continue with part two next time as Pat evaluates the question of whether we can believe in miracles. We appreciate you spending some time with us, and you can get more at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. There are so many topics and resources there. We know you'll find something important to you. And we hope to answer the most difficult questions that we all ask about God, the person of Jesus Christ, world religions, spiritual issues, cultural trends, and more all in light of biblical evaluation. We're asking you to engage your mind and know why you believe what you believe. And we believe that persons who honestly consider the claims of Christ and examine the evidence supporting those claims will become followers of Christ. Let us know if we can help. And finally, because we raise our own support, we invite you to support us financially. Your stewardship and giving helps keep evidence and answers on this station. So please let us hear from you today. Just click the donate button at evidenceandanswers.org. Thanks for being here.